Gospel according to John chapter 4. As you know, John started us in a new series last week entitled Miracle, The Power of God's Salvation. Last week we heard about the power of God to save a morally upright man like Nicodemus. And this week we turn to John chapter 4, we will read about God's saving grace toward a very different type of person. John chapter 4, please pray with me. Father, we praise you this morning, for you are good. Father, you are good and you do good. You are worthy of our praise. And so we thank you, Lord, this morning that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We gather today, Lord, to worship you and to receive from you. And so we ask you now, Lord, please speak to us through your word. Please open our eyes that we might behold your glory and be changed from one degree of glory to another. And then, Father, I pray that you would send us out as your emissaries, as your ambassadors to a world desperately in need of your grace. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, John chapter 4, I'm going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 42. Please follow along as I read now from God's holy and life-giving word. John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the, wa and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then, His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to Him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of, this, because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. But may God bless the preaching of His holy word. Well, in the summer of 99, I was 21, my, my younger brother was 19 years old, and we, had, we, um, we were living it up in those days. We didn't have a lot going on at the time, but we were super into the sport of skydiving. Our life revolved around working during the week to save up enough money so that we could go on the weekends and jump all weekend and just live it up. And so we did this over and over and over again for a number of years. One weekend in particular, we went to a drop zone in West Tennessee where they sold what they called a jump till you puke pass for $100. Now, normally, jump tickets for about $25, and so this was an amazing deal. You could jump the entire weekend for $100 as much as you can. So we got there first thing in the morning. We started jumping. You get up, you take like a 15-minute ride up to altitude. You get to 13, 14,000 feet. You jump out of the plane, enjoy free fall. Uh, then you get under canopy, land your parachute, and then you'd run over. You'd pack it up and then get back on the plane and do it all over again. It was an amazing time. We must have gotten in 20-plus jumps that weekend. I don't even remember how many it was because it was a long time ago. My memory no longer serves me well. We didn't even stop to eat. We were having so much fun. We we had much more important things to do than eat, and so we didn't care. Have you ever had something like that where you you were so into it, you were so committed to what you were doing that you didn't even stop to eat? You said, no, no, I have more important things to do. When John chapter 4, we see Jesus pushing through exhaustion. He carries on neglecting even to feed his body because he had something more important to do. 
He had a better mission to give himself to. John chapter 4 is a beautifully rich passage. There is so much here to mine and to enjoy and to benefit from. And so what I want to focus this morning on is the mission that Jesus gave himself to. We see in this chapter what was truly important to Jesus, what he was about, what drove him. As God's people, what drove Jesus should drive us. Whether you're very young or very old, your mission in life ought to be informed by God's mission for your life. His priorities should shape our priorities. Something is wrong if in our lives, our priorities and the mission of our life is out of whack with what the one who created us, the one who called us according to his purpose, has. if he has given us a mission and we're not giving ourselves that, something is wrong. And so this morning, I want to invite you to let the mission of Jesus shape and inform the mission of your life. So we're going to, talk, we're going to walk through John chapter 4 in three different sections as we look at this, as we look at the mission of Jesus. This first section we might title the mission embodied. Verse 3, right there, it start, starts off, and it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He was departing again for Galilee. Now, this is, this is partly true, um, <laughs> but it's not completely true if we, if we just take it at face value. He, didn't, he wasn't forced to pass through Samaria. There were a number of ways that you could get to Galilee without going through Samaria. In fact, most Jews of the day would, would bypass Samaria. They did not want to enter into Samaria because, as you read in the text, the Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans. So many Jews would actually go the longer way, and they would cross the Jordan twice in order to bypass Samaria, but not Jesus. It says that he had to pass through Samaria. So when we read that, the first thing that we want to notice is that if you're looking at a map and you're thinking, that doesn't make sense, why did he have to? Well, he had to because he had a burden, he had a mission, he had a purpose that led him through there. He had a mission and he would not be put off, in other words. And this is where we simply want to marvel at the heart of Jesus. It's incredible. He was so committed to this route Because Jesus cares about people who are lost. He cares about those who are far from God, those who are hurting, those who are broken, those who are hopeless. Jesus was willing to exhaust himself and to take the longer route to go out of his way in order to seek out the lost. Comfort. He was willing to to forego his hunger because comfort was not as important as rescue to Jesus. Jesus later tells us that what mattered most to him was doing the will of the Father and doing the work that had been set out for him. So we see here what drove him. So he goes through Samaria and he comes to this well and he meets this woman. And this is a scandalous moment. It's difficult for us to appreciate just how scandalous it was. But what Jesus did here in the first century was simply unheard of. Jews were not supposed to associate with Samaritans. Jewish men were definitely not supposed to talk to women that they were not married to in public. And furthermore, this woman was not just any woman. This woman had a sordid past, a very questionable reputation in her community. It's really remarkable. It's absolutely fascinating to me that this story follows the story of Nicodemus. Here in in, in the story of Nicodemus that we heard about last week, the contrast between these two individuals could not be greater. Nicodemus was a Jewish man. He was a highly respected teacher. He He was known for his morality. 
But he was a Pharisee who carefully obeyed the teaching of God's law. But this woman is none of those things. She is a Samaritan woman. Furthermore, her lifestyle is questionable at best and a flagrant contradiction to God's law at worst. But as D.A. Carson points out, Nicodemus and this woman had one thing in common. Both needed Jesus. Both needed Jesus. And so therefore, Jesus pushes past every barrier of the day because he knew her great need. Jesus wanted to give her what she needed, which was more than a lasting marriage, more than a bucket of water. Don't you love this about Jesus? He sees her true need. Her life is so messed up that she comes out in the sixth hour. That's, that's like noon. That's the middle of the day. This is not when women would go out and get water. They would do it in the beginning of the day. This is still true today. If you go to Africa or your place in the world where you go out to the, to the wells, you do that at the beginning of the day, not in the middle of the day when it's hot. But the women will go out at the beginning of the day. So why is she going out in the middle of the day? She wants to, she wants to avoid being seen. She knows that the, the other women know her. They know her reputation. And so she wants to avoid that. She may be judged and rejected by everyone else, but this woman is not rejected by Christ. He goes to her. He sits down and he engages her. His love for her is unhindered by her reputation or from her sin. His love for her compels him toward her. Imagine what this is like for this woman. This woman who, to those who knew her, they looked at her and they they avoided her. They warned their children about her. They whispered about her. She knows that rejection from her community. And here, a Jewish rabbi treats her like she actually has some level of dignity. Like maybe she's actually worth something. This is significant. This is remarkable. Jesus is here embodying the mission of God in the way that he determines to seek out the lost. He crosses social boundaries, religious boundaries, cultural boundaries. He takes the initiative in engaging this woman. He is tired and hungry, but his heart is so filled with compassion and love for her that nothing will hinder him. He was on a mission. This next section, starting verse 7, we see Jesus approach this woman and ask her for a drink. We might call this section mission defined. Jesus was likely thirsty. He'd been traveling. It's a, it's a hot and arid climate there. And so you know he was very thirsty. But he had a deeper purpose in his request. When he asked her for a drink, he wasn't simply looking to satisfy his thirst. Rather, He asks her for this, and she points out the problem. What are you doing, you, a Jew, asking me, a woman, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? You know that we we can have nothing to do with one another. But Jesus tells her, basically, you don't know what you're missing. He says in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So she starts to pick up here that maybe there's more than meets the eye with this Jewish rabbi. Maybe, maybe there's something going on that's beyond the surface with him. Jesus presses the point home that the water that he offers will give her a level of, sat, a level of satisfaction that is lasting, that is not like the water in this well. And so she says, sir, give me this water that I might not thirst again. Give it to me, please. But Jesus doesn't simply give it to her. 
He doesn't simply take her initially and assure her on the spot that, okay, no problem, you have a spot by my side. Now, I don't know about you, but imagine if you share the gospel with someone and they say, okay, I'm in. I'm in. Count me in. You would, you'd want to close the deal right there. You'd, you'd want to get them to sign the card, you know, come to church, right? But Jesus does not do that. He doesn't just move right on and, and say, okay, great, this is wonderful. What's going on here? Why does he belabor the point? Jesus wants her whole heart, and so he presses further. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, we see Jesus respond to her in a very provocative manner. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Can you imagine how exposed this woman feels in this moment? She didn't realize that he knew her story. She, she had said something that, that was true, but she, she didn't want him to know all of what was going on. What Jesus does in this section is he reveals that what is true about this woman and what is true about you and I, he knows it all. He knows every deed. He knows everything about her. He knows her whole story. He is telling her, I know more than you realize. He wants her to come to him realizing that she is fully known so that she might realize that she is truly loved. You see, when we're not fully known, we're not fully known, it's hard to feel truly loved. We often, oftentimes, I've had this experience, I'm sure you've had this experience of talking to someone and, and you commend them for something and they say, oh, oh no, if you, if you really knew me, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that. We, we tend to guard ourselves. We tend to guard what we let others know about us. And as a result, they don't truly know us. They don't fully know us. And so if that person ever tries to encourage us, it's easy to dismiss, thinking internally, they wouldn't say that if they really know, if they really knew the true me. And so we keep people at arm's length, carefully guarding what they know. But Jesus knows this woman better than she realizes. In provocative manner, Jesus demonstrates that she is fully known, and yet he is still pressing forward with her. Imagine the relief that this woman feels after he, real, after he demonstrates, I know you, and he doesn't reject her. After he demonstrates, no, no, I know all of, the, all of the details, all of the difficult, painful memories that you have, you are fully known. And so just release it all. It's encouraging. You don't have to feel like you, you need to guard yourself to be freed from guilt and condemnation. And, and, and instead, he looks at her with eyes, not of judgment, but of love. He knows her, and he still loves her. She had married, been married five times, and now she's living with someone she's not married to. It's like she's given up trying, like she's looking for meaning, for joy, for satisfaction. But time and again, she was coming up empty. And so Jesus draws her attention to the one place that she will find ultimate lasting satisfaction is in him. Verse 13, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water, he says, that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus reveals himself to her as the true source of joy and satisfaction in life. What this woman has in common with you and I and everyone else in the world is that she wanted to be happy. 
She wanted to experience peace. And so she sought that in marriage. But her marriage failed. And she did it again. And then that marriage failed. And she got married again a third time. And that marriage failed. And then she went beyond the Jewish law of the day and got married a fourth time. And then a fifth time. And now she's not even bothering marrying this guy that she's with. And we don't know all the details. Why was she, was she widowed over and over again? Did, they, did the marriages just fail? We don't know. But she was seeking satisfaction and happiness. And she was looking mostly in the wrong places, not bad places necessarily, but it's over against this empty lifestyle of, of seeking joy and, and, and this hedonistic culture that Jesus continues to offer today to this woman and to you and I, this invitation, if anyone is thirsty, as he says elsewhere, let him come to me and drink. Author Malcolm Muggeridge spoke of this in an essay a number of years ago. He was an accomplished writer, and he said, I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the internal revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draft of that living water. Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. The reality is that this woman and you and I and everyone in all creation are created to worship. We all do it. Some of us worship sports teams. Others of us worship careers and success, money, power. Some worship family and relationships. Not all bad things, but not one of them can bear the weight of our worship. Not one of them. Jesus tells this woman and reveals to you and I as well that He is the Savior of the world. In verses 21 through 24, Jesus tells her that God is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And then in verse 26, He does something astonishing for the very first time in all of His ministry. He reveals Himself as the Messiah. It is the first of seven what what we call I am sayings in the Gospel of John. And here we see it revealed not to the disciples or to, to the devout religious leaders, not even to Nicodemus. But Jesus chooses this moment with this sinful and desperate woman from Samaria to say, Ego, I, me, I am the Messiah. He is inviting her and you and I to abandon any sense of self-sufficiency, to cast off the hope that we have in any broken cistern to satisfy our thirst and fulfill our need and to cast all of our hope upon Him. He is saying to her, I can give you what you need. I can provide absolute, indescribable satisfaction in the core of your being, regardless of your circumstances and your background and your sin. All of those reasons that internally you say, no, surely that can't apply to me. He is saying, no, I have it for you. There is nothing outside of us 
that can truly satisfy the thirst that we have down in us. Jesus is called in this passage the gift of God. He is the fountain of living water. He is greater than the patriarch Jacob. He is the long-anticipated Messiah, the anointed one. He is the one who knows all that we have ever done. He announces that he is ego ami, the great I am. He is the Savior of the world. This is the message of Jesus. This is his mission to proclaim the hope of the gospel that salvation is found in nowhere else. He offers that to you and I and to anyone who will believe. Just believe. He has more mercy than you or I could ever imagine. Have I gone too far? Have I done too many bad things? Have I outlasted his grace? If you think you have great sin, His mercy is more. And so if you're here this morning and you have never put your hope in Jesus, I want to encourage you to do that today. I want you to know that He is willing to take you right now. He does not tell this woman to clean herself up and then He will accept her. He does not want you to clean yourself up. It does not matter how badly you've messed up. He knows it all. And he invites us to come to him as we are, simply to look at him, to look to him and to see the mercy that he offers you and to put your hope in him, to ask for forgiveness, because he is more eager to forgive you than we are to ask. And he will give you living water that will satisfy that thirst that you feel deep down in your soul forever. He is a mighty Savior, and he is able to save to the uttermost. And that brings us to the final section. You look down at verse 27. After he announces that he is the Messiah, after he reveals himself to this sinful Samaritan woman, this section will title, Mission Assigned. The disciples come back, and the woman goes home. She can't wait. She goes out and tells everyone that will listen about the man who, who knows all of her deeds. She says, can this be the Christ? Come and see the man who told me all that I ever did. She doesn't even take her water jar with her. Look at that. She just leaves that there. That was a necessary source of sustenance. And she, you know, metaphor, you know, she you know, picture, this, displays this for us all, that I don't need it anymore. I have Jesus. And so she runs off because the most important thing now is to tell everyone else. And the disciples look on and they marvel and what they saw, they see their Jewish rabbi interacting with this woman. And it says here, they didn't ask, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? But they go on and they, they just kind of overlook that. And they see he's tired and they know he hasn't had anything to eat. And so they say, rabbi, here, take some food. But he, he wasn't interested in that. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And they say, Who, did somebody give him food? And, and he goes on in verse 34. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus had more important things to give himself to. He was tired. He was, he was exhausted. He was hungry. But he had something more important that was driving him. He had a, a mission that was compelling him forward. The work of the kingdom, he says, is like food that nourishes and sustains. 
Here he lifts the gaze of his disciples and he, he says, look out upon the field. See that they are white for harvest. And he commissions them. And by extension, you and I and all who follow him to do the work of sowing and reaping. And thereby be fulfilled, thereby to have the same nourishment that he has in fulfilling the work that God has called for him and for you and I for the sake of the gospel. He points out the urgency of the need. It is time to reap. And he's just demonstrated with this Samaritan woman that the time is now. We live in a world similar to the world that he walked in. We live in a world that is desperate for help. We live in a world that is desperately seeking satisfaction in all the wrong places. And Jesus delivers us from it all. He commissions us to go and proclaim to everyone around us, like this Samaritan woman, we want to share the gospel with our neighbors. There are people all around us, you and I, who do not know what they're missing. They're, they're caring about their lives. They're not necessarily asking questions. They're not necessarily saying, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. They're, they're putting on a good face. You ask them and, and they are too blessed to be stressed. But there are people all around you who are hurting, who do indeed have questions, who are indeed struggling, who do lay in bed at night. You don't have to look far, and you've, and you've seen it announced on lips. You, you think of numerous stories. You think of Tom Brady after winning multiple Super Bowls and saying, you know what, I just thought I'd be happier by now. I thought, I'd, I, is this all there is, really? You have neighbors and coworkers who are longing for something to put their hope in. They're looking for something to worship. John Piper wrote a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. It starts off, with a very well-known section. In describing the work of missions, he says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. Well, you could substitute missions for evangelism here. It's the same thing. Evangelism is not the ultimate goal of the church. It is not what we're all about. Worship is. Evangelism exists because worship doesn't. If we prize the glory of God and if we obey the command to love our neighbor as yourself, how should that inform the mission of your life? So let me ask, have you tasted the living water that Jesus offers? Have you been satisfied with Christ the way that he promises this Samaritan woman? Have you received from the Lord the love and the grace of being delivered from your sin as we sang about this morning? Do you see the need of those around you? 
Jesus here lifts the disciples' gaze. He wants to lift our gaze around us to see the need to recognize that the time for harvest is now. And we, as we behold the beauty of Jesus, as we look at the way that he interacts with this woman, as, he, as we contemplate the way that he has extended grace and mercy to you and I, the way that he is patiently born with us, that ought to compel us. We want to marvel at Jesus And let that inform to how we relate to those around us as well, as we consider the way that he is born along with us. Look at at how he relates to this woman. Jesus was intentional with her. He was compassionate toward her. He took time out of his very busy schedule to go to her. You think about how busy, I mean, all the time when I ask people, how are you doing? They say, "I'm, I'm very busy. People ask me, how are you doing? I'm very busy. <laughs> we're, we're very aware of our business. Nobody, nobody had more demands upon their time than Jesus. And he took time out of his schedule to make time for the lost. He took the initiative with her. He was relational toward her. He was not cold or condemning in the way that he spoke to her. He sacrificed his time and his energy for the sake of the lost. You know what else he did? Jesus didn't just go around and say, hey, I love you, I love you, I love you. He said uncomfortable things. He shows this woman, I know your sin. He wants to help her see her deep need for her, for him. Because otherwise it would be cheap grace. Listen, there, there are people all around us. In the, in the, in the neighborhoods right around this, this building and the land where we're building and in the neighborhoods that you live in and in your workplace and in your coffee shop and at the gym that you go to, there are people all around you who need Jesus. Their, la- their lives may not look wrecked. They may not be like this Samaritan woman. They might, be, they might look more like Nicodemus. But they need Jesus. Like this woman, they guard themselves so that you don't really know what's going on in their lives. They, they keep you at arm's length the way that we often do with one another. We tell part of the truth. We don't really tell the whole truth. We we say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of struggling. We don't say, I, I'm, 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 I'm at my wit's end. And so like Jesus, we want to go into the community seeking out the lost. Like this woman, we want to go and tell everyone about the Savior and about the hope that we have. Like the disciples, we want to go into our community to reap a harvest of souls. But if you don't know where to start, I just want to encourage you, look around. Look around you. Consider those who live right around you. Look next door. What do you know about your neighbors? Consider those you work with. What do you know about their, do they have a church background? Do they have any kind of spiritual beliefs? Have you ever asked? What about those in your social circles, your, your school or your kids' school, sports teams, the parents sitting on the bleachers watching your kids' sports teams, those at the gym? I want to encourage you to grab coffee with these people. Invite them out to coffee and get to know them. Learn their stories. Consider inviting them over uh, to your home for a meal with your family. Consider inviting yourself to a meal in their house. You ever done that? When is, let me ask you this. When is the last time that you were in a non-Christian's home for dinner? When's the last time you had non-Christians over into your home for dinner? Make that a priority. 
Jesus made time for them. Let's, let's make time for them as well. Enter into their world and learn their stories. It's one, of the, it, it's one of the just easiest ways in the world just to express the dignity of the people that we talk to, to just learn their stories. Tell me, is, where, where did you grow up? Tell me, what was your background like? What were your parents like? Did you grow up in church? You, oh, you, oh, you come from a different country. What, what were your beliefs like over there? Enter into the world. Ask lots of questions. Find out what makes them tick. You see, Jesus was compelled by love for the lost. We ought also to be compelled by love for the lost. Do you love your fellow man? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? If you struggle in that area, we, we want to ask God to do a work in our hearts. It's not, it's not good. If we look out and we're indifferent to the plight of the lost around us, we want to ask God to do a work. The reality is that there, there is a spiritual battle going on all around us. The enemy of our souls is seeking to lead many astray. And so we cry out, Lord, do your work. Do you know who, how the Lord often does his work? He uses you and I. He answers, when we say, Lord, please save my neighbors, he says, yes, I have put you next door to your neighbors. Please share the hope that you have with them. Take an interest in them. Get to know them. Share like Jesus does with the woman at the well, like he did with us. He commissions us. He here tells us to lift up your gaze. Look out and see that the fields are ripe for harvest. He commands us to go out and to reap. We are called to obey. But the Lord does, he does call us to obey, but he doesn't call us simply out of strict obedience. Look at verse 36. There are rewards to be had. There are wages and fruit. There is rejoicing for those who sow and those who reap. There is joy to be had, brothers and sisters. Let me close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says it in, in his inimitable way. Spurgeon writes, if you are eager for real joy... Such as you may think over and sleep upon, I am persuaded that no joy of growing wealthy, no joy of increasing knowledge, no joy of influence over your fellow creatures, no joy of any other sort can ever be compared with the rapture of saving a soul from death and helping to restore our lost brethren to our great Father's house. Friends, there is work to be done. We are surrounded by people who need Jesus. So let's give them what they so desperately need need. Let's pray. Fathers, we read your word as we contemplate your grace, as we consider the mission of Jesus to save sinners. Father, first of all, we, we want to respond in awe and gratefulness and worship at the fact that you saved us. Lord, not one of us deserved your grace. We don't deserve your grace now. But you give mercy. Father, every one of us has benefited from someone telling us about you. And you use them to open our eyes to the gospel. And so likewise, Father, I pray that you would use us, that you would help us, Father, to submit to this command, Lord, that we would lift up our gaze, that we would look out upon the fields, that we would go out, Father, in awe and gratefulness, compelled by love, filled with your Spirit, and proclaim the hope that we have, Father, that the nations would be glad, that the people 
would rejoice. For salvation is found in our God. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.